You're listening to Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time. Hey everyone, welcome back to Fathoms and Enneagram Podcast. This is our final episode of season one. I can't believe it's already here. Q&A episode, how y'all feeling? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We made it, gents, we made it. We did. Yeah. Feeling fantastic. (laughs) Fantastic. I'm still terrified, to be honest. (laughs) Oh, what a callback for the OGs. Um... (laughs) Name one thing that uh, really enjoyed uh, about one of the episodes or something you learned or something like that. Uh, I, I think my favorite episodes have been the interviews, to be honest. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah the people for we sure. got were for so, sure. so cool. Deborah Uten and Leslie Hirschberger, mind blowing. And then, then our buddies, Jason Miller and Kevin Smith, who will be making an appearance on this podcast. Yes. Milton and Milton. Oh, yes. Yeah. What a brilliant We had some good guests on this first season. Yes. Yeah. And so good. A, our, our, our list is miles long for the guests that we <laughs> are planning on having in uh, the second season. So, super this excited about that. I would say, though, in addition to the interviews, probably my favorite parts of the podcast are all the outtakes that end up on the cutting room floor. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So some yeah. someday we need to share some of those with everyone. I don't know if we should do that. <laughs> my eyes got wide. Went, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. That's awesome. All right. So we are mostly focusing on Q&A uh, questions that people have sent in for this episode. Um just to kind of tie any loose ends that you all may have, let's get started. I wanted to ask about what you think of compassion and discipline. As a four, I am very familiar with guilt and shame and have become a little bit burnt out with a lot of the self-help talk about just being kind to yourself and being compassionate with yourself. I think those things are important, but it further reiterates my doing repressedness and so I wanted to ask how you guys discern when to be compassionate and when to give yourself a kick in the butt and to just do the life-giving things that you know that you need to I will sometimes get into a cycle of beating myself up and wallowing in guilt and shame and then even more so not being able to do the things I need to do thanks so much guys that is such a good question it is I love that question yeah that's a good one to start with yeah, I actually just think of this, you know, me, this quote from a lady named Tara Moore. She says, where we think we need more self-discipline, we usually need more self-love. And out of that yes. comes, it's the, it, to me, it's the difference between this external changing of behavior. You can keep moving around the deck chairs, but nothing's going to change, mm. you know? Whereas if I can practice more self-love, these other things naturally move on their own, you know? Yeah, it's... It's really true. I mean, being a four wing five, it is, um, it is very difficult to not uh, shame yourself into action. And I think in her question, there is some level of duality that you can't both give yourself sure. a kick in the butt and not and be compassionate at the same time. And I think, I guess, mm-hmm. I would just challenge that maybe um, you can kick yourself in the butt and be compassionate at the mm-hmm. same time. That you can move into action. And and shift your perspective slightly to like actually, what is the deepest deepest part of me that actually like what do I actually want? What makes me 
actually feel good. And that yeah. is going to be more than likely the thing that you're trying to shame yourself into action for. So functioning out of desire and uh, goodness instead of uh, shame is is really going to help bring those two seemingly dual options into unity. It's, yeah, I think you're right. It, I think there is there are certainly aspects of discipline that are loving, right? Right. As, and as long as we are doing it in a way that recognizes and expresses love, as opposed to just being punitive, shaming, guilt-ridden. And, but I, I do think Stacy's speaking to um, maybe some of the positive self-talk that she may be, you know, finding less helpful. Like there is a toxic positivity that's yeah. always present if you are searching for uh, Enneagram stuff. <laughs> There's a lot of mm-hmm. toxic negativity and a lot of toxic positivity. And toxic positivity, I think, shows up when we try to do the whole bypassing thing, which we've talked about in previous episodes. When we're trying to bypass the good work that we need to do in order to grow and develop and just bypass it by putting uh, just happy slogans on it. Mm. Um, And I think that type of positive self-talk without (laughs) recognizing that there is some difficulty to this work that -hmm. comes with knowing the Enneagram and knowing your type, that's not helpful. And it's also not loving, right? Right, yeah. Um, I think So I think that you can hold both um, discipline and compassion together because love can exist and kind of emanate from both. I mean, it is, it does ring a little bit of uh, spiritual bypassing. Yeah. Of like, like Abram was saying, the the actions but without the internal shift it it just doesn't end up doing much for you i wonder even where if you were talking about the levels of 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 development of you know maybe if you're farther down compassion might be the one you might want to stick with more often than kicking yourself in the butt you know sure um and then maybe higher up maybe it would be more about kicking yourself in the butt that's just another option Mm -hmm. yeah it's hard to know specifically kind of in general when to be compassionate and when to kick yourself in the butt. Uh, it's funny we're saying this phrase a lot, um, <laughs> which I kind of like. But I think in general, there should be healthy rhythms yeah. of both yeah. present in your life. Mm-hmm. That you should be able to look back on a week and see instances in which you are compassionate to yourself and instances in which you did kind of instill some discipline within yourself. Mm-hmm. And hopefully in all those instances, self-love and compassion is present. Yeah. Yeah. Even in the times where you said, no, you know what? I am not going to eat that entire pizza. <laughs> you know, Because right. uh, yeah. that is probably the most loving thing to do as opposed mm-hmm. to just stuff my own face. Right. right. And I think the most valuable thing in all of that is just the observation. It reminds me of this idea of good enough parenting. Uh, the idea behind it mm-hmm. is that, yes, you are going to screw up and you're not going to do an amazing job all the time. But hopefully more days out of the week than than not this this duality that kids are growing up trying to figure out of of uh, autonomy and connection, trying to balance that. I think the same idea here is that hopefully more often than not, you know, you're you're moving towards something that's beneficial. All right. Great question, Stacy. Let's move on to our next question from Lee. 
I'm wondering if you could talk about more about the focus of attention on time and um, how that impacts relating with people who have a different focus of attention to time, past, present, or future. Thanks a lot. All right. Of course, I love this question because I love to talk about time <laughs> perspectives in the Enneagram. Uh, so I'll start and then gents, feel free to chime in. Um, I think Lee brings up a really good point that we haven't talked about, which is if you have, if you're in relationship with someone who has a different time perspective than you, how how does that work or what, you know, what suggestions do you might have? So I think this is interesting because we could then overlap time perspectives by the stances. So those assertive types are very future focused. Those dependent types are very present focused and those withdrawn types tend to be past focused. And if we start to mix those together, we can see that how quickly and very easily, you know, different types can be kind of working on different levels and perspectives on time and where conflicts can arise. So then we can maybe bring in conflict styles, which we talked about Mm -hmm. recently, which would be really interesting to do some time and conflict stuff. Uh, But I, I do think similar to what we mentioned with the conflict styles, that just knowing that your type tends to be focused more uh, more heavily in one perspective, often at the expense of another perspective, that's really helpful knowledge to bring into any relationship. Uh, it's also helpful knowledge to know in someone else, you know, that you're relating to. So for instance, for me, as a very uh, future-focused person, when I am I- interacting and engaging with my wife, who is a very present-focused person, I've learned I can get out too far ahead in our relationship without tending to what's right in front of us. Mm -hmm. And I would think my wife would say that she sometimes can get a little mired in what's right in front of us and not be able to kind of lift her gaze up and see, you know, maybe a a horizon a little further ahead. Yeah. And so uh, knowing that about one another can be really helpful in helping work through conflict or Mm -hmm. uh, preventing it when it doesn't need to be there. Uh, And what it also allows us to do is just to value the time perspective that others bring to the table because we need that, you know, in order to live in what I call as the fullness of time and use our time well, we need all three perspectives. So -hmm. it helps us value what others bring to Mm -hmm. the table. What would you guys say? I mean, I think you hit it on the the head, but really time is an illusion. Oh boy. If our goal is to help answer questions, we are doing quite poorly. <laughs> quite poorly. <laughs> this is all the matrix yeah, personality anyway. Personality is what causes um, time. There are actually some then some theories out there. I've heard it mostly through our, our friend Kevin that even your different centers of intelligence may have a different orientation yeah. to time depending on different things that we won't go into, but I think it's also where you where are you focused on? What are you um, speaking to? Are you are you speaking from your heart? Are you speaking from your head? Are you speaking out of your your body or your instincts? And and even that may have a, a slightly different orientation or perspective on the situation at hand. So so recognizing uh, where perhaps you may be speaking from and where the other person may be speaking from is yeah. uh, is a really important thing to kind of just wrap your head around. And, and then, yeah, and then you couple that with conflict styles, and I think you're going to have a really, really beneficial conversation. Yeah. All right, so our next question is, uh, again, from our friend Stacy Magwick, who, her question c- came from one of our previous episodes with our friend Leslie Hirschberger, who talked about 
kind of a different perspective on the centers. Hi, yeah. On the episode with Leslie Hirschberger, she talked a little bit about how she thinks the heart triad is more the doing production triad and the body triad has like really big feelings. But I was just wondering if you guys knew more about that and could talk about that a bit more. Stacy, that's such a great question. We, we thought it would be the best option to bring in uh, a person who's got 20 plus years under their belt to answer that. Thanks to Leslie for chiming in with her wisdom. Hi, Stacy. I'm so glad you asked this question. And I have to tell you, it's one that I'm working with all of the time. It's such a good question. And way I guess I want to start with saying is that I would test it out yourself. I don't know what your Enneagram style is, but I would test this teaching out for yourself because I think that's the way it's best to learn it. And the other thing I want to say is that all the different perspectives that we hear about these different functions have a right to be heard. So that's just kind of, kind of the background. I come to it as a teacher, as a facilitator, as a spiritual guide and counselor and as a coach. And and what I found, Stacy, is this really helps me work with people. Let me tease out a few distinctions. The first is there's a crucial distinction when people come and sit in the chair across from me or on a panel and we start working together. And that is what's going on on the outside and what's happening for them on the inside. All right. Those are two really different things, inner and outer. And what's happening on the outside is often a response to what's happening on the inside. It's not like it's a conscious response, but it is a socialized response often. With the exception of, say, when a dog surprises you and barks and you go, ah, you know, that's an instinctive response. But a lot of times our responses are socialized responses. So remember that there's a distinction between inner and outer. The next thing I want to talk about is what do I mean when I say feeling? Because that's important too. And I'm going to put a caveat in here that my teacher, Helen Palmer, didn't want us to use the word feeling as she thought it would be confusing. And my gosh, we talked about this for months. And I landed on agreeing with one of my compadres that feeling is really is the word. And I'll t- we'll talk about why. Is One, it identifies that kind of pain and pleasure continuum. Where you feel strong, where you feel pain in the body or not, uh, repulsion or attraction. It's, it's instinctive. It's, it's a, it's a feeling that something draws me or something turns me away. And sometimes we're embarrassed by what draws us. Now that would be socialized. So let's say I'm attracted to someone or something and I'm kind of embarrassed that I'm attracted to it. So the socialized, um, response would be, you know, I oh, I, oh, that's gross, when inside I may feel drawn to it. So remember, inner and outer again. But the feeling is body consciousness. It's the root truth of our experience. And it's hard to explain in words because it's another kind of truth. It's a feeling truth. That's why metaphors are so helpful. Like, I felt like I got hit by a ton of bricks right? That would be really hard. Like, what does it feel like to get hit by a ton of bricks? But you know what? When you share that with people, they nod. They know what that feels like because it's in the body. And it's it's it, to explain how it feels is slower than head time. So if I ask someone how they're feeling and they quickly tell me how they feel, that's a thought about the feeling. It's not the direct experience of feeling because it takes a moment. Body time is slower than head time. 
So when I'm working with clients, I'm looking at how fast did they talk about it? Because that's information. It gets, it takes longer to get to a body feeling than a thought about the feeling. All right. So life force is, is another word. It's an experience though. It's not a concept. My life force energy in any given moment. Am I energized? Am I drained? Am I draggy? Knowing what's happening in the body. And if, you know, most cultures, most schools, most, we're not talking to people about listening to their body. And there's a lot of research about it. And it's a, it's something called interoception. And interoception is what I'm feeling in the present moment. And I learned a lot about this during a four day training on somatic experiencing, where what we were really looking at is feeling into our own felt experience in the present moment and learning. There's, I mean, there, I could teach, weeks on this, all right? That's why I'm offering a course on it and preparing a course on it because I really want to help people get to this and I learn from my students and clients. But somatic experiencing is what am I feeling somatically in the present moment? So it's kind of like saying, how do I explain awe and wonder? You know, it's hard to come up with words. That's how feelings in the body are. A feeling is the water in which we swim in. I have it, you have it. So it's a false distinction, really, to say that any of us aren't feelers because we all are. It's like we're all thinkers, we're all doers. We do all three, but it's like, what do we lead with and where do we, what do we defend around? All right, so the two, threes, and fours, almost in my work with them, they almost need to be alone to have their own feelings because in our session together, they're wanting to check to see how their feelings are landing with me. And they might re-describe, they might reshape, they might want to act in a certain way um, in order to be perceived in a certain way. So they're kind of mirroring, they're reflecting, they're responding, they're seeing how it lands outside of themselves with me. And it's all to facilitate connection. That's why they're called doers. So it may not be doing like, okay, I'm going to go do something like, you know, go to the market. All right. That's a do, that's a real overt doing. A more subtle doing is smiling and nodding or turning away. Maybe so I can appear desirable if I turn away from you. That's a doing. Does that make sense? So the doing can be very subtle and it's about doing connection. And my experience of the heart types off time is they're repressing their own somatic experience. And I remember when I was training in somatic experiencing at that four-day workshop, I worked with different Enneagram styles and I found that the heart types had this tendency, first of all, it's hard for them to close their eyes and be with their feeling. They would articulate that, that it was uncomfortable for them to do that in the present of another person. I worked with a number of fours and the fours would would describe their feelings in, in kind of a storytelling style. And it was it was almost, I could feel the, um, so they, they may be having strong feelings, you know, with fours, it's a strong feeling of like extremes of all or nothing. But I found they had a hard time explaining mundane feelings. And articulating a mundane, ordinary feeling like, oh, I feel a little tightness in the jaw, kind of a buzzing in my chest or my right for my right finger. They wanted it to be florid and deep and meaningful. They wanted to kind of summarize the feeling journey in a statement of meaning rather than the direct experience of it. So the one final thing I want to say about this, and I'm sorry this answer is getting long, 
But body types never really connected to the explanations of traditional Enneagram teachers, in which I think a lot of them were not body types, quite frankly, a lot of those early teachers. Um, they never quite connected to the sort of mechanical, instinctual, gut-type hired, hardwired for survival. They just didn't connect to it. They said, actually, I feel really strongly inside on that pain-pleasure continuum. I have strong feelings, right, wrong, like, don't like, pain, not pain. And I go stubborn, and I harden around those, and it's hard to budge me because it's a strong feeling. And so I just get certain about it because I don't want you to get to my vulnerability. Because if I get to my vulnerability and share that with you, you might take advantage of it in some way. And so when I explained this and started teaching it to body types, the feedback was, God, somebody finally gets me. You know, I can't say it like you can, Leslie. Well, I'm a head type and I'm pretty disconnected from that feeling. So I can explain the feeling about the feeling in a florid kind of language and write a beautiful poem on awe and wonder. But am I in my awe? Am I in that state? So it's a present-centered state. It's not a description of the past. It's not a description of the future. What I'm feeling in this present moment is what I'm talking about with feeling. And the heart types have a hard time getting to that when they're in the presence of another person because they're trying to get connection. So my work with heart types is to help them connect to their own present moment feeling. So I hope that's helpful. It's a lot, Stacy. And like I said, I'm developing an entire course around this because I really like to teach it and then have feedback. So we're working with this together because I see the Enneagram is constantly organic and constantly unfolding. All right, so take care and thanks for asking the question. You really got me thinking. I mean, Leslie just knocked it out of the park, so uh, not much else left to say, um, but the book um, that I've been reading and just working through a lot of that um, is Dick Wright's The Enneagram Triad, so go ahead and check that out. I still have a lot, a lot to learn about it, um, but it did it did name some really interesting things uh, about myself, about my, my four experience, and I'm currently looking into that and learning more about it. And if you're interested in Dick Wright, I would look even further back to where his work actually comes from, which is Suzanne Zercher. All right. These are great questions, guys. Uh, our next, we had a whole set of questions on instincts and subtypes. Good morning. Thank you for taking my question. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about subtypes. I'm a type three and I've been trying to pinpoint over the last several months and lots of reading and research what my subtype is, and I just can't seem to nail it down. I was wondering if you might have some insight on how to better understand subtypes as it relates to me and as it relates to the people around me. So thank you. Bye. So we received a question from Julia who says, hello, Fathoms podcast hosts. And that's us, by the way. Yeah. 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 Okay. And she writes, I'm curious to hear your thoughts in regards to the stacking of social, self-preservation, and sexual. What is the transformational hope connected to these three? Is it to seek balance, like a three-legged stool idea where you have these three legs that keep up a stool? Or is it to lean into what is repressed? I hear people blame whatever their top one is if it's working against their way of living as well as I've seen it used as a badge of honor when it can 
seemingly be used as a way of uh, being seen as superior to what someone else might be lacking? Can you please offer insight? That's that a great question. That is such a good Heck question. question. Um, and we actually have our buddy Kevin to answer those questions. Questions about instincts on the Enneagram are some of my favorite questions about the Enneagram. We spend so much time exploring all of the abundant material about personality that's been released uh, with the Enneagram. And yet uh, we say repeatedly that the instincts offer so much more potential for growth. I think there's a reason for that. I think these questions drive at the heart of what we're aiming for in studying ourselves in the Enneagram. I would say that the Enneagram of personality is a useless tool if we're using it to study others. If we can use it to study our relationship with ourselves and how others are found mirrored inside of ourselves on the outside, then we can start to study a little bit about you know, interpersonal relationships. And yet the main goal of the Enneagram is that I get to know myself, that I find more access to myself than I have in the past, that I show up for myself in ways that I've never tried before because I've been locked into an attachment to what I've interpreted myself to be. We know that as our dominant type. It's commonly referred to that the instincts are located in the body or in the gut. What they mean, I think, when they say that they're located in the body is that they're located in the gut center. And I would say yes, and in addition to that, they're also located in the heart center and in the head center. And so understanding the centers, I think, is the key to really understanding the instincts. I think it's fascinating that, that a human quality across the board is to oscillate between being better than other people or thinking we're better than other people or thinking we're worse than everyone else. And so we have a tendency to, to criticize on both directions, either criticize the self and be really cruel to ourselves or to criticize others and in the same sense, be cruel to others. And so we, we go between these like bouts of self-pity and switch into the other extreme of being condescending and arrogant toward other people. If not publicly in our own heads, we do tend to, to be mean to each other. I think that's reflective of the imbalance of the instincts that we are experiencing. And so I would answer yes, that the, the idea is to seek a balance in the instincts and the most efficient way I know to do that is to study experientially how the centers integrate with one another on the Enneagram of personality. And so the body center or the gut center and the heart center and the head center can all be aligned and balanced. And we could talk you know, quite a bit about how to do that. But I think maybe by skipping all of the methods to do that and just describing the experience, would be more effective for, for people. And that experience is really what we've called presence. Uh, you experience presence when your centers are aligned. All three are in balance and working together when you're present. Um, quieting the mind, still making the body still, feeling the emotions, uh, all of those things by breathing into it are giving us access to our instincts through the centers. And the instincts are in every level of the body. And so we can access our instincts through um, bringing our attention to a certain center uh, and getting to know each of the centers within our body through meditation or through yoga 
or through stretching or whatever works for you is a, a really effective tool to begin to learn what your dominant instinct is. If you can start to identify how you're responding to your relationships or to your experiences of life, uh, a sexual dominant person is going to be focused on what it is that makes them feel alive. A social dominant person is likely going to want to feel like they're an integral part of some organization or group dynamic where they can interpret their place and feel comfortable knowing what is expected from them and what their responsibilities are. A self-preservation dominant type would be more concerned about the, the peripherals around them and whether or not responsibilities have been met. And so it isn't just about self-preservation, but it's about preservation of all those things that come into play with their the people they love and the events that they have planned. It's more about their uh, outlook on life than it is anything else. It's, it, it is motivated. I would say that the instincts are probably what's giving us our underlying motivations um, in our personality types. It's those things that are driving us in one way or another. And so being repressed in an instinct or blind to an instinct would give us the most potential for growth if we bring our awareness to that. And so for me, that's self-preservation. And so I use my supportive instinct, which is social, to help me get there. I really enjoy social activities. And instead of making the social activity about finding an individual or an experience that I connect intimately with, Instead, I use it to connect intimately with myself, which is what self-preservation is. If I'm listening to myself somatically and emotionally and mentally, then I'm able to take care of myself and show up for myself and build my relationship with myself that brings the other two into balance. For others who are maybe self-preserved dominant, it would look very different. It would uh, be overblown self-preservation focus. So there would be a lot of preoccupation with what needs to be done or what um, my responsibilities might be toward other people in so much that I might even forget to connect intimately with someone else, which would be sexual instinct. So I might be sexual blind in that example, or I might even forget that I have a role to play with other people as a group dynamic, and that would be social blind. Um, it, it It isn't that I don't care about myself and my self-preservation blindness or that a social blind wouldn't care about the group or that a sexual blind person wouldn't care about connecting deeply and intimately with people. It's that it's not even on their radar to some extent. Um, In much the same way, the dominant instinct that's at play is going to be uh, taken for granted probably more than anything else. And so it's just assumed that that instinct is what everyone else is experiencing too as a dominant. And so a lot of conflict arises through these misunderstandings of perspectives that are based and rooted in what I believe instincts. Um, so if I can begin to study the instincts a bit more and understand you know, what my instinctual stack is and how I'm able to interact with other people who have different stacks and realize what kind of what color glasses they are looking out of, it gives me greater access to have compassion for these other perspectives and experiences as well as to utilize um, the experience of these other people's instincts as an example for me to begin to balance them out myself in my presence practices, whatever those might be. 
and growing in our capacity for presence is really the goal for me and what I study in the Enneagram. So that whatever is going on around me doesn't throw me off center. So I try to find this balance between becoming uncomfortable and yet still being manageable. And when circumstances outside of our apparent control throw us off, we have to regroup. And what we have found in being thrown off our balance is that we revert back to what we found comfortable for most of our lives, which is our dominant instinct and our dominant personality type. So being able to distinguish between the two, that your personality is not your instinct, your instinct is not your personality, and connecting and linking the two through the centers, understanding how each center relates to and connects to another center until all three are balanced is one way to reverse engineer, if you will, presence. Um, doesn't have to be done in order to experience presence. You can simply just become still and quiet and breathe into now. And that becomes a very unique experience for each person. And then as we want to become more intellectual about this experience, we can start to plot it on the Enneagram and look at it in front of us on a two-dimensional representation. Kevin on the couch mm-hmm. comes through yet again. Brilliant <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, so I attended, uh, and I'm not sure... Have you? Did you guys attend the Instincts Workshop offered by Nan down at Enneagram Atlanta? I don't no. remember. I don't think I did. Okay. I did, which is one of the Rizzo Hudson approved trainings that she does. And so she uh, kind of, it was a whole weekend on the mm-hmm. Instincts, which uh, was fabulous and mind-blowing to me because I'd never done a deep dive on the Instincts before. Mm-hmm. And I came out of that weekend with a renewed commitment to truly lean into my kind of repressed or blind spot in my instinctual stack, which Mm -hmm. for me is social. Because what I realized being in the room with people who were social dominant types, I realized that they had so much to offer me in terms of that was just natural as to how they live their lives and not natural to me (laughs) that uh, I needed to go and begin doing some very intentional, even small things to begin to raise up and work with my instinctual blind spot. And so I think that there's a ton of growth and work. I even, I think, Nan, please correct me if I'm wrong here if you're listening to this, but uh, I think Nan said that our greatest kind of growth and development work comes with working with the instincts, specifically with our instinctual blind spot. I can, I can, yeah. Oh, for sure. (laughs) Maybe just a a quick overview of those instincts. Uh, Russ Hudson talks about um, somatically experiencing these instincts, and he talks about how the self-preservation instinct kind of, if you can feel it somatically, you can, um, like, you can know if you're hot or you're cold or you're hungry or you're full or just something doesn't quite, isn't quite sitting right after you eat it or something like that, or you had too much caffeine and you're jittery. That sort of sense of well-being that, that's kind of that somatic experiential piece of the self-preservation instinct. And then you have the sexual instinct, which is more in the, in the lines of kind of that electricity that you can, if you just take a moment and kind of sense, especially in your extremities, kind of a, a tingling sensation. Think about when you're excited, just like your, your body feels more alive. And there is, there's just like this, this, pulsating energy, this electrical feel um, about your body. And then the social is more along the lines of your relatedness to what's around you. 
Um, and he talks about how just like a flower can be closed and it can be open. Um, are you, do you, do you sense that you are more open to your environment and to the people and things around you? Or are you more closed? And that's kind of more of that social instinct somatically showing up um, inside of you. So as we're working through that, just kind of keep that in mind. I found that really helpful to have some level of experiential handles to um, kind of help differentiate those instincts. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, again, this is a heck of a question. There's a lot here. Um, I have heard from different teachers different things. Say, you know, engage the blind spot. Some say engage the dominant. I think you do both. I think depending on the issue, depending on the, the time, depending on, I don't know. I, I, I know Beatrice says actually look at your dominant first. But, I, but like we've said, uh, Hudson says hang out at your blind spot. One thing I have valued from Hudson mm-hmm. is that he he talks about this more of an, uh, as the approach to like what's our relationship with each one of the instincts. Because obviously the, the point is, is that we need to cultivate a healthy relationship with all three if we want them to be working as they should be. You know, like like you just right. named, Creek. Uh, when, I, when I'm hungry, I need to be able to sense the, uh, my, my self-preservation instinct telling me that. But if my, all my attention and energy is directed towards uh, one of the other ones, I'm going to miss out on, on that. So it's, it's about a balance of, I do think it's about a balance of all three, but how you get there, yeah, I just think it's, it's, it's tricky. But, it, but one thing I've, I've uh, read from Hudson is, is he says that trying to not do your dominant instinct is like saying, you know, whatever you do, don't think of the color blue. Well, you're, you're going to <laughs> right. if you say that. So yeah. what he says what yeah, does right. seem to help is, is uh, giving more of a compassionate attention to the blind spot. So this, this, he says this tends to restore balance throughout, throughout all, the, all the instincts. And once we work through the initial uh, sort of resistance and inertia, we can tend to feel way better about ourselves. So like this, it, this then takes the pressure off of the dominant instinct. To me, again, it's that, it's, it's that sort of quote from Tara Moore, like what we usually need is more self-love. So where's the place that we're, we're sacrificing um, and and sort of paying attention to that will sort of inadvertently allow the other ones to naturally come into play as they should be, you know, playing out. Right. Yeah. I've also yeah, heard Russ talk about oftentimes uh, a path to get to your repressed instinct is by um, tapping into your secondary and using that as um, as a way to tap into that the energy and the the feeling of that repressed instinct. So, so he, he gives an example of how if you are self-pressed blind and, and social is your secondary, that you're like, okay, I want to have people over. Well, my apartment is a mess. I, in order to have people over, I need to clean up my apartment or something along those lines to, to yeah. tap into that uh, that secondary instinct to motivate you to tap into that repressed one. Yeah, and I will just say too, whatever if you are working on your 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 blind spot or your repressed, um, I've heard it said that there is usually a lot of shame and uh, denial mm. around this uh, and fear around this 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 instinct. Um, I know that to be very true for myself when it comes to self preservation being last for me and when you I've heard Russ say that when when you actually do accomplish like whatever your blind spot uh, is it feels like maybe this is more specific towards the, the self-pres but it feels like um, I'm an adult I'm, I'm not a, just a boy anymore you know <laughs> I'm doing real life real yeah. adult things you know
This question comes from our episode with Jason Miller and this question from Anna reads, what makes this reality different than the last or more trustworthy? Based on your analogy of looking at our beliefs of reality as scaffolding and seeing them as not useful anymore or as only part of our lives but not as reality anymore, what would be the new reality? What would make this newfound reality worth pursuing? How do I know that I am walking towards a reality that is only based on what my new beliefs are? And how do I know that those beliefs are not also based on people's opinions or new knowledge that is of human nature? Whew. Wow, what a, what a, what a yes. question. Uh, well, That's we huge. didn't know the answer, so we thought we would uh, bring in uh, the big guns uh, that initially guns. that question came out of. So uh, the one and only Jason Adam Miller is here to help us answer this question. From now on, you can call me Jason Big Guns. No. <laughs> Done. Yes. <laughs> That's going in the show notes. Uh, hey, guys. Uh, good to How's have it you. going, man? Howdy. Yeah. By the way, we're recording the day after, Drew, your, uh, your, your book baby is out in the world? Book baby is out in the world. Yes. yes. Congratulations. Hey, That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, first of all, uh, I love the question because I think when people are moving through maybe some deconstruction or stuff like that, you can end up in kind of a nihilistic place where it's like, well, why even ask questions about, you know, truth or whatever. So I really love that she's asking. Um, and uh, I know we only have a couple of minutes here to hit this and we could probably spend hours mm -hmm. on like, how do we know what we know and all that. So I just, I was trying to think of what are a few things that might be helpful with the limited time that we have. Um, and what came to mind is first of all, um, I know it's like awkward a type of question to do a comment thread and it might not come out quite the way you mean, but uh, it's not like we're proposing a different reality, right? We're, there's only one reality, at least the way I understand things. We're just asking how much we understand like the one reality that we're all a part of, right? And so I, I wouldn't like want to say, yeah, there's an, a different reality that we're in now. It's just, no, we're just looking to keep moving toward um, living in harmony with reality. Mm -hmm. And that means everything from our behaviors and our bodies to our minds and our thoughts. Um, I think it can be really scary because if, if you're raised in systems that, that make you think that you're certain and that, that convince you that you can be certain and then you leave that behind, you might be looking for a new thing that you can be certain of. And I'm just not sure that really exists. Mm -hmm. uh, I think certainty is kind of a category mistake for knowledge for humans. Um, I think what we're really looking for is like with, with all that we've experienced and all that we have on our hands in this moment, like what's the best system of language and what's the best story that we can tell that aligns with, that is as close as we can get to what's real. Mm -hmm. um, but that's different than being certain, right? So I think it's helpful to just like point out, like I don't know that if you've been on a journey and left some things behind, I don't know that there's a new certainty waiting for you that will feel quite as cozy as the certainty that you left behind. I think uh, there's a couple other cues that at least help me a lot and maybe this will help the listener. Uh, one is, I think a lot of us have been raised to believe that knowing is something that you do with your brain. And um, there's actually lots of ways of knowing. I think we know things with our bodies and we know things with our emotions. And I think it can be really powerful to open yourself up to those ways of knowing and sort of folding them in. Um, but that can be really scary because it, it can feel squishy. <laughs> it can feel kind of squishy, right? Um, if you... <laughs> Have like a, a long list of doctrinal statements that, you know, felt really certain one, one day in your past and they don't now. And now I'm saying, well, you can know things with your body and with your emotions. 
that doesn't feel like you're getting back what you lost. I know that, mm. but I think it's really important um, to begin to make peace with your body as a way of knowing things and your emotions as ways of knowing things too, alongside using your brain and rationality to keep figuring things out. And then the one other piece I just wanted to throw out here was, um, at least for the tradition that I'm speaking from, you know, when I think of the Bible, there's the, there's a lot of ways that the Bible tells us that you can know things by their fruit and you can evaluate things by their fruit. And so like, I would say, if your theology um, makes you less loving, the Bible actually tells us that's a sign of bad theology. If your worldview leads to disintegration, like there's all these evidences in scripture that that's a, that's a warning sign that you, you probably are putting things together the wrong way. But conversely, if your theology or your worldview leads to love, that's a sign that you're probably on the right track. If your theology or your worldview leads to wholeness and healing, that's probably a sign that you're on the right track. So like when um, Jesus says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you find yourself in greater freedom, that's probably a really good mm -hmm. sign, right? Uh, the Bible says the spirit will lead you into truth. And that it's the same spirit that creates fruit like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. So if you find those things growing in your life, I think that's a really good sign that you're on the right track. And I don't think it's relativistic or, you know, flimsy to trust that the fruit of our worldview in our lives and in our relationships and in the world is a, is a very reliable way to evaluate whether we are moving toward reality or away from it. Yeah, I think there is something to be said about um, really knowing knowing where you're going, you, you can only go as far as the present moment. And so taking stock of what's happening right now, the, the best reality is the one that's right in front of you. The, mm. the, the beliefs that shape that reality um, are, are something to be questioned for sure. And is this the thing that is leading towards good to wholeness to more freedom or is it limiting myself? And that is the Enneagram. Right. So what is the reality mm. right in front of me and, and how is how is that shaping me and how am I shaping it? I can tell you one thing that's not squishy, and that's the mind of Jason Big Guns Miller. <laughs> 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 no squishiness there. No squishy. I'll take it. <laughs> awesome. Well, Jay, thanks so much for, for so hopping good, on man. and Gracias. really appreciate yeah, it. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, good to catch you guys. Talk to you soon. Later. That was there a fun goes. surprise. That was lovely. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, these are so good. Uh, I wish we had, we're going to have to do another Q&A episode sometime, guys, because we can't get to nearly all the questions that were submitted. So if yeah. we didn't get to yours, sorry, we will. Uh, but we have a, our last few questions are come from a batch of questions we received that are more type specific. So uh, we don't get real type specific on the podcast. So we thought it'd be a good chance to attend to some of these uh, since we haven't really done the type specific focus like other podcasts have done. And so we're going to hear some of those questions. So first off, I think we'll hear from Julie, who's a type nine, who has a question for us. Hey, Fathoms. This is Julie from Franklin, Tennessee. And I have a question about being healthy and unhealthy in your type. So for me, I identify as a type nine. And I know I can become more like a three when I'm moving on that line of integration or become more like a six when I'm moving into disintegration. I also know that all types have nine levels of health. My assumption, perhaps incorrectly, is when someone looks like a different number, it's temporary. As in, 
I had a stressful deadline at work and I totally saw some six qualities come out or I have a goal in mind and I need to tap into my threeness in order to sum up the energy to complete it. Uh, so I guess my question is, is there a situation in which someone can look like a different number for a long period of time? Or is that an indicator of their health level? I hope that made sense. Thanks so much, guys. Awesome. Uh, and also, Julie, props to you because you are the 11th question on SpeakPipe and your question was one minute and 11 seconds. So Whoa. you nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. Okay. Uh, I find this to be a little bit of a tricky question. Let me see if I can get at it by, by naming a few things here that I just want to get clear you know, being healthy and unhealthy in your type, first off in my mind, is it's about, you know, it's about loosening the grip of our type patterns, how, how over really or over our identity, you know, this limited perspective of who we think we are, which also limits how we see other people. Um, but uh, Mario Sakura says that the goal should never be to become more or less like another type. It should be to apply all the, the type strategies in effective, uh, healthy and adaptive ways. Um so, you know, just I think one of the main ways that we do this is we observe our dominant type patterns as often as possible, you know. So for the nine, notice the emotional and mental habits. So for the nine, it's, it's uh, mentally, it's, it's how we diffuse our attention to forget what's important. And then for the, the emotional patterns, it's, it's how we're inattentive to our own feelings and needs and how we strive to be unaffected emotionally. Uh, this is usually just no anger. Um, but specifically to the nines, um, as I'm kind of getting outside of my more narrow view, you know, my consistent open uh, to to the the line of three is really all about value. So when I know that I have value, I I'm more likely to act and engage um, because I have a huge and important role to play in this world, and I know that, and I believe that, and I trust that, and people need me. But when it's the line of the six, um, you know, I, I, this is about having courage to speak up. Because no, no matter what other people think, I, I have something to say. I, I am valuable here too, so I can face conflict. But yeah, so the six really also teaches us about faith. It teaches us to practice. Uh, even though I might be afraid to act and engage, uh, I can do it anyway. So that's what real courage is, right? But it, uh, it also comes from just knowing I have value. So if I have value and I have worth, then then I can, I can engage. Uh, another thing, you, you asked the question about lines. So to my understanding and from... From experience, you know, behavior is external. I do think we can hang out in a stress number or I think you're more likely to hang out in a stress number than you are uh, in a secure number because it's it's more, I think it's more rare to be incredibly feeling uh, just at, at home and okay and, and secure. I mean, I think you can get there, but I think it's probably easier to hang out in your stress number more consistently over a long period of time. But again, I don't, I, w I don't know if that's going to be um, just in every situation. That would probably be primarily around a person or a situation or a work environment. It might bleed over into the rest of your life. I don't know, depending on the person and depending on the, le like you mentioned, the levels you're in, where you're at on the levels. But I do think you can hang out in your your stress number for a long period of time for sure and that can be tricky about how you type yourself for sure but yeah. but again that's i think that's about the situation and the person that causes that mm -hmm. kind of behavior to come out i think it is important to find what hangout means uh, mm -hmm. in that space yeah and it's you again you aren't necessarily moving from your origin point 
to the other. You don't become a three and you don't become a six. Mm-hmm. You are you are adopting strategies of those numbers. So you, but your core motivation remains the same. Yeah, like we've m- mentioned in one of our episodes before, it's about how I've overdone the strategy of of my nineness, and I need some of the sixness to mit- mitigate that. Let's say I have procrastinated for so long, and now I need the six to kick me into gear to get some stuff done because yeah. I'm freaking out about how close I am to this thing causing yeah. conflict. Yeah, so it is really just a lot of, again, it is about that self-observation, that compassionate awareness, um, and and watch how you are, yeah, watch how you're responding at work, at home, in comfortable situations and stressful situations, finding that underlying motivation, that underlying desire of what is it that I'm trying to get out of this? And and what are, what are the stories that I'm believing about myself and about this situation that is affecting how I interact with the world? Um, how how I am limiting myself. Take take those lines as information, um, not as necessarily places in which you need to go or have to go. Stay within stay within who you know yourself to be. Not even take take the enneagram out of it. Stay with who who you know you are, and, and rest in in that essence of yourself. All right. So our next question is from David Toflon. He's an enneagram seven, and honestly probably one of the top five humans in the world is, is gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna just gonna say it that's that's what I think so I'm excited to get to know David now yes yes he's great so here's the question hey guys how's it going my name is David Toflon friend of Creek Moore and Seth Abram okay so definitely resonate with the type seven my question is I'm recovering from trying to bring goodness into every moment, often forcing it. (laughs) Classic. And my question is when to know or how to know when I can bring it as a gift. Because some moments, some friendships, some circles, there is that appropriate place. How to know when it's adding to the right moment and how to know when it is just me not feeling like the moment is in control and I need to control it to make it happier. Yeah. Thanks guys. This points to kind of like the flip side uh, for me of how much sevens and fours are really just the other side of the coin for each other. Yeah. Um, And uh, he and I were actually just talking the other day. He can be handed a screwdriver and a hammer and be like, and think of, look at everything that I can do with this. Isn't this amazing? Where I'm handed that, I'm like, man, I wish I had a saw. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we're both missing it. Uh, we're both missing, um, he, he's going to try to cut a piece of wood with a hammer and screwdriver, and it's not going to look that great, but he's going to make the best out of it. Where I'm going to miss that, look at all the things that I can do with a hammer and screwdriver. Um, so we're, we're, bro- we're both missing part of the glass. Some people think it's half full. Some people think it's half empty. Well, we're both missing the whole glass. And I think the thing, uh, what, what David is saying, trying to bring in goodness to the moment, what if goodness is already there? And it's just about calling attention to it. And and I know there's there's difficult situations, there's sad situations, there's painful situations, and that's especially hard for a seven to wrap their mind around that there is still good in this yeah. situation. Uh, and I think back to our uh, Abram and I's uh, episode on the two sides of emotions, right? That that sadness, there's there's a value in sadness. It's, it's telling you, 
um, what you value and what's missing and honoring what's missing. And so I think it's you, your presence, David, your presence is the goodness. You being present and experiencing this moment and, and being there in whatever capacity you are able to be there, as present as you can be, you are the goodness and you are bringing the goodness into the situation. Um, trying to force something that is already full isn't going to work. Um, yeah. So allowing and, and trusting that the goodness is already there, even if you don't feel like it is. Uh, that's good, Creek. Felt like you just took us to church. Um, <laughs> thank you. Awesome. Uh, but I think that's true, of, uh, especially true of sevens. You spoke to that well. I think it's also true of all the types mm-hmm. that uh, they have these inherent gifts that they can bring to the any room. Uh, but we all, for our own kind of reasons and issues, uh, fail to believe that we're actually bringing those gifts. So we want to manufacture mm-hmm. them, right? Right, right. We want to conjure them up. And uh, so that's that's certainly true of the seven, but each type has its own kind of issue with the gift that they bring and struggle to believe that they, they have that gift within. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Yeah, and if, we're, if we stick with the idea that these are gifts, well, you receive a gift, right? Mm-hmm. So these, like you said, Creek, these, these things are meant to be allowed and seen as, as ego types, um, just as ego types, then we believe we are disconnected from our from our main gift. And I, I would just say to to bring some clarity for the knowing when maybe the seven is mm-hmm. is uh, forcing the gift. I think one is that you, maybe you could locate how much sevenness is being forced when fear of limitation and being trapped is being disguised as pleasant options and on to the next thing over and over. Mm. That's that's when it's usually disguised, but it's it's it. It looks it looks like the imitation of the gift, right? That's it's just good. an it's an it's compulsive over overdoing of the gift. Right. It's compulsiveness, mm-hmm. and I think you, if you're honest with yourself, you can feel that. All right, so that is our final question for this episode. Thank you so much for everyone who's who's lent their ear to uh, this podcast, who's shared things, who's who have uh, just just engaged, and thank you for doing your own work. Thank you for jumping in and trying to figure out where's your ego, where's your essence. And we appreciate and we need you to keep going. We need you to keep doing your work, to keep being present and to uh, keep being the fullest human that you are. Um, So thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, Yeah, and I'll just add my own thanks to each and every person that has listened and subscribed to this first season of Fathoms. I'm just so encouraged and grateful that we get to do this and I'm so thankful for each of you. Yeah, and to to echo the echo of my echo with your echo. Um, <laughs> no, no, really, really, just it's been uh, fascinating and uh, just really exciting to get to do this uh, with, with both Creek and uh, Drew. You guys are amazing. I'm so grateful for both of you and... Uh, mm. Yeah, I, this has just been such a, a, a thrill ride for me and really, really excited about what's coming. Thank you guys for, for everybody that's been listening and following along. We're really grateful that you're here and just your participation and the commenting and, and everything. We're, we're, so, uh, we're so grateful. Thank you guys. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to be sitting down 
and are recording more podcasts. We're going to be brainstorming about season two. So if you have any ideas, topics, guests, things you'd like us to talk about or do, please send it over uh, via the Fathoms Enneagram account and uh, we will consider those. So in the meantime, until season two comes out, how can uh, how can people follow you? How can people engage you all? Well, you can find me at uh, either at Seth Abram on Instagram or Integrated Enneagram, at Integrated Enneagram on Instagram or send me an email or call me at five, seven, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I have a lot on my plate these days, but I am starting to ramp up a little bit of some coaching. So if that's something you might be interested in, interested in based off of any of the fun things I've said this season, feel free to hit me up at integrated Enneagram at gmail.com and we'll set up something. And uh, you can find me on Instagram at my at Enneagrammers handle. I'll be staying pretty active there since the book just came out and would love for you to pick up a copy of the book and read it while we're on this short break in between seasons. And also I'll be ramping up my kind of workshops related to the book and am happy to do those virtually. So if your your group or organization uh, wants to dig into the Enneagram, look me up and reach out. So happy to uh, engage you in that conversation. Great. And you can follow me at Creekmore Music. You can check out my music on Spotify and anywhere else you have music. And I too am doing some coaching and typing sessions. So reach out to me via Instagram or my email, creekmoremusic at gmail.com. And we can see if we can get something set up. So thanks again, everyone. Uh, We love you. Can't wait for second season. Don't forget to send us your ideas. And we love you. Sincerely. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. If you found this episode helpful in any way, consider sharing it with a friend or family member. We are so honored to be on this journey with you, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time. Truthwork Media Studios.